Genesis 1, while you're turning, I'll just do a couple things. Uh, first of all, thank you on behalf of uh, my family for welcoming us here today. It was very kind of Brent to invite us to come. I will say if you're a visitor today, uh, please don't judge anything about the church by me. Uh, I'm the B, B team, maybe the C team. I don't know where. Brent's the A team, so definitely come back uh, another Sunday and hear him. Um, I always, always felt that way when I was gone. I'm like, well, they don't know who we really are if I'm not there, but I know that's not the case, but it's how you feel sometimes. Uh, I will also say, just as a quick observation while I'm up here, that just as a third party watching all that God has done here at Colonial over the last few years under Brent's ministry, it has just been such an encouragement. And I just have looked at him and thought, what a great job he's done. So you guys are really lucky to have him. I hope you let him know that often, that you express your gratitude to him and to his family as much as you can. So make sure you do that. Let me also bring a little bit of word of greeting from the people over at Cornerstone. The elders specifically asked me to express their deep love for you, uh, their appreciation for the partnership that we have in the gospel together here in Hampton Roads. It is a wonderful thing to know you have like-minded churches around you in a given region, all who are proclaiming the same gospel, all who are preaching the same Jesus. And so together, God is working in our midst and in our area to spread the kingdom here in Hampton Road. So thank you very much. Uh, since Paul mentioned it, I, yes, I'm with Crisis Pregnancy Center. We don't, I don't talk about it too often publicly unless I'm specifically going to that uh, purpose. But I'll also just say thank you on behalf of CPC for all that you guys do for the ministry. A lot of people don't know this, but um, there was a time, and I couldn't give you this if it's how up-to-date this is, but there was a time that there were more abortions here in Hampton Roads than there were in Las Vegas. In this past year, 2018, according to the preliminary numbers we've received from the Virginia Department of Health, over 5,300 children were killed here in South Hampton Roads. That's not a Virginia number. That's not even including the peninsula, Northeast North Carolina. That's our area here, over 5,300. So it's a, it's a big deal. And one that we need to be taking before the Lord regularly and doing all we can to, to work against. So we appreciate all that you do and all that you have done for us in the past. And so I just bring my thanks to you as well. All right, we're here in Genesis 1. Um, we are going to read the entire creation story. Um, don't worry, you will get done before 2 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> but I want to read the whole story because we're going to be touching on points of the entire story. And it's always good to keep our context together whenever we can. So when I'm in one of these moments, I try to just say, well, let's just read the whole thing, right? Let's just read the whole thing, remind us of everything that's being said here. So I want you to follow along as I read out loud. We're going to begin in Genesis 1, verse 1, and then I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Moses writes, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. 
God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Will you bow your heads with me for just one moment? Father, we ask your blessing on this time. Lord, work in spite of my feeble words, work through your powerful word, apply it to each and every heart. May we come away from our time together in Scripture this morning convinced that you are at work, that you are carrying out a process, and that you will see it done. You will see it to its completion and its perfection in our lives as you have done throughout all of human history. And so, Lord, magnify yourself this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We just read 
one of the most familiar and uh, well-known stories in the entire Bible. And as you likely know, it's also one of the most controversial stories in all of Scripture as well. In this story, Moses is telling us that God created the world in six literal days. And for some, like myself, I would definitely be in this camp, they take this story as a statement of historical fact. I believe with all my heart that God created the world in six days. And yet for others, I recognize that they see this as an unbelievable myth that does not conform to the facts of science. And so because of these two diametrically opposed positions, it seems to me that people tend to get very animated when they get ready to discuss a passage such as the one that I've read to us this morning. They tend to get very passionate about whatever position it is that they happen to hold when they come to this particular scripture. Now, generally speaking, I am all for people being passionate about what they believe. I've been that way for a very long time now. In my opinion, if you're not passionate about whatever it is you say you believe, then I would question, do you really believe it at all? And so I like when people are passionate about their, their beliefs, but having said all of that, here's my starting point this morning. When it comes to this particular story, I think we might need a little less passion and a little more understanding. And that applies to all parties in the debate, okay? So no matter what you say you believe, whether you agree with me or you don't, I think all of us need to just kind of back up a little bit and think a little deeper. You see, part of the problem that we have here is that because of these strong views that we bring along with us when we come to study a passage of Scripture such as this, we tend to come to the story asking it to answer certain questions that, quite frankly, it was never intended to answer. For example, a lot of times when you bring up Genesis 1, people might ask a question like, is there a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? Well, the answer to that question, honestly, is I don't know. I don't think so. I don't see that in the text, but to be honest, I can't answer that question because Moses doesn't answer that question. He's not intending to write a history for us here or an exact chronology of everything that, that happened. He is writing a theology. He is trying to introduce to the people of Israel as they are walking out of Egypt to the promised land in the wilderness who in the world it is that has brought them out of Egypt. He needs them to know who their God is, and so he's writing a theology that begins in creation. And so I can't answer the question you asked because Moses doesn't answer it. He doesn't even think that way. Or here's another one. Are the days of creation literal 24-hour days? Well, I already told you, I think that's the case. That's definitely how Moses wants us to read it. There's no question in the text that he wants us to come away from the story with that exact thought, and I do, in fact, believe it. But at the same time, I still think that even that question, to a point, misses what it is that Moses is trying to do here with why he tells us about the days of creation at all. I think those days are here to teach us something about God, but, but no one's asking those questions. And so what this does, I hope, is it should force us to stop and ask ourselves an even more fundamental question. And that question is, why do we keep asking the wrong questions? Right? Why, why do we keep asking the wrong questions in the first place? When we do it without even thinking about it, why? Well, I would like to propose an answer to you this morning via the form of a parable. 
I don't remember where I got this. I would love to take credit for it, but I don't think it's mine. So I'm just going to read this to you, and parables are great because they just are stories. You just listen and get to enjoy. So enjoy this little parable for a moment. There was once a beautiful forest filled with tall, stately trees, wide glens, flowing creeks, and abundant wildlife. And people were so taken by the beauty of the forest that they would spend hours walking through it, admiring its beauty. Well, in time, a path was formed through the forest. And being the followers that we are, most people decided to just follow the same path every time they came through the forest. Well, in time, that path became a rut, and eventually that rut became a ditch. And before long, people were walking through the forest in that ditch, unable to see anything but the dirt walls on either side of them. And so, rather than stopping to admire the beauty of the forest, they stopped to argue over the identity of the roots that were sticking out of the ditch walls. That right there is the root of an oak tree, said some. And others disagreed, no, 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 that, that is the root of a maple. And yet no one ever took the time to simply look up to see what kinds of trees they really were, much less even stopping to contemplate the idea of climbing out of the ditch just to enjoy the forest again. No, they had become content, both by length of time and the guidance of others, to just argue about the identity of the roots rather than enjoy the forest itself. Now, what's my point with that little parable? Remember, my question at the beginning of this was, why do we keep asking the wrong questions about the creation story? Well, I would suggest to you that perhaps it's because we have all been conditioned, both by length of time and by the guidance of others, to read the creation story in just one way. Uh, in other words, to walk the same path that everyone before us has walked, to ask the same questions that everyone before us has asked. And we've done this for a long time. When we come to the creation story of all stories in Scripture, our knee-jerk reaction is to either immediately defend or disprove God's divine creation of the universe. And it's been that way ever since November 24th, 1859 because that's the date that Darwin's Origin of Species was published. And ever since that point, generations of believers have walked through the creation story in the same exact way. And what started out as a path eventually became a rut. And what was a rut eventually became a ditch. And many of us in this room have grown up never really thinking outside of that ditch, honestly speaking, I think that at least. And that's why we ask the wrong questions. Our view of this story tends to be so small so narrow that we've never even attempted to climb out of the ditch just to enjoy the beauty of the forest that is in front of us again. And so when I decided years ago to preach through this section of Scripture, I, I really wanted to try to help people get out of the ditch as much as I could, as much as I could affect that. I wanted them to ask the question, what is the theology of creation that Moses is trying to communicate to us here? In other words, what do I learn about God himself and about his plans for this world and how he works in this world? Why did God do these things the way that he did them? Why did Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, record them in the way that he recorded them? In other words, I wanted people to, to stop asking the how question and the what question and start asking the why question. And I'll be the first to point out that I don't think I've done that perfectly. I'm not even sure I've done it well. 
But I did my best to compile certain truths from the text that I believe do teach us about God and about his ways. And hopefully by approaching it in this manner, you'll get an idea of what it means to climb out of that ditch and to begin to enjoy the creation story with new eyes once again. I'd like to introduce one of these truths to you this morning by drawing your attention to what I think is a really interesting question. Now, I'm easily interested in things, uh, ask my wife and family, but hopefully you'll find this interesting as well. Um, Any person in this room, I'll set it up like this, any person in this room who has come from a theologically conservative, Bible-believing background has probably grown up in a world where the only real opposition to the six literal days of creation are the billions of years of evolution. And so, because of the time and circumstances in which we've lived, a commitment to believing that God could make the world in just six days has become a badge of honor for many believers. It's like a, a badge of fidelity. And so we're willing to state with pride, I believe that God made the world in just six days. He is powerful. He can do whatever he wants. I believe that. Amen. And we're all very excited. But here is my question to you that for some of you, it's going to blow your mind. Ready? Why did it take six days? Why did it take six days? I mean, if, if God is as powerful as we say he is, and as he in fact is, and he can do anything he wants, why didn't he do it in six hours, or six minutes, or six seconds, or even one second? Why take six days? And I'll give you what I think are the only two possible answers to this question. If you come up with a third possible answer, Brent really wants to hear it next Sunday right before he preaches, okay? I'll give you the only, I think, are the only two possible answers to that question. Either he did it because he had to, it was an ability issue, he's like, I'm working as hard as I can, folks, it takes six days to make a world, it's all I can do, six days, best I can get. Either he did it because he had to, it's an ability issue, or... He did it because he wanted to. It's a purpose issue. There's something going on here. It has to be one of these two things. Either he's constrained into doing it this way, or he simply chose to do it this way. Well, for the sake of time, I'll just tell you it was not an ability problem. All right? He's not constrained into this. He's in no way limited. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So ability is clearly not the issue. Therefore, it has to do something with purpose. There has to be something here that he wants us to see for why he chose to do it in this particular way. And the truth I'll share with you this morning will, I hope, shed some light on why I believe God chose to do it in this way. Here's the truth. It is because our God works through process and progress. Now, you see both of these ideas in numerous ways throughout the creation story. And what I mean by these ideas of process and progress is that although God is powerful enough to work immediately and instantaneously whenever he wants, in creating this world, he chose not to do that. He chose to work through a process and by means of progress to reach the end result. Now, I see this process and progress in at least three ways here in the story, and I'll show them to you this morning. Number one, you see process and progress in the very way that God has structured the creation week and the way that Moses has recorded this story. 
Um, it doesn't take a knowledge of biblical Hebrew to quickly recognize that the days of creation follow a bit of a pattern here, almost formulaic at points. In fact, there are four things, I don't know if you've ever looked at this, but there are four things that occur on each and every one of the six days of creation. Number one, notice how each day begins. And now you'll just kind of have to look at your scripture while I'm talking here. Feel free to be looking up and down. Notice it always begins with God speaking. And God said, let something happen, okay? Every time, it begins with God speaking. Number two, those statements are always very similar. Let something occur. Let something come into existence. Let something be. So he's speaking things into existence. That happens every day. Number three, whatever God says happens each and every time. And then number four, um, every day ends with the same kind of phrase. And there was evening, there was morning, day, whatever. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. These four things occur on each and every day of creation, but there are some other repetitive things as you look through the story that occur on multiple days, just not each and every day. For example, you see God declaring that what he's made is good on several of the days. He doesn't do that every day, but he does it on multiple uh, days. So there's a pattern that develops. Uh, you see him dividing and separating things on multiple days. You see him naming things on multiple days. And you see him blessing things and giving instructions to things on several of the days. And so clearly, by use of all of this rep repetition, you begin to get a sense of the structure that Moses has built into the story. But, but if you're looking at your text, you, you should begin to notice something else. And that is, is that while there are all of these repetitive elements built into the structure of the story, it's not a perfectly symmetrical pattern, is it? I mean, if it was a perfectly symmetrical pattern, then each day would look identical in terms of how it's being presented in the story. For example, day one, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there's evening and morning the first day. Next day, day God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there was an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there was evening and morning the second day. Well, if you just compare day one and two, you see it doesn't read like what I just said. It doesn't sound exactly that way. The pattern isn't presented identically from one day to the next. Moses, in fact, changes the pattern by progressively adding more and more complexity to the story on each subsequent day. Follow along in your Bible, verse 3. Look at day 1. What do you have? Well, you start, as always, with God's speech. Let there be light. Okay? That's very short. In fact, it's the shortest speech in the entire creation narrative. Let there be light, that's the end of it. You see that what God said happened, there was light. God declares that what he's done is good. He separates things, he names things, and the day is done. Okay, that's day one. Short, sweet, to the point. Like I pray when I get about to eat dinner. Jesus, thank you for this food, amen. All right, day two, more complex. It again starts with God's speech, but this time notice that his speech is longer. It's longer, it's more complex. He doesn't just say, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. He also tells you why he's making it. It's to separate the waters from the waters. That's different. Next, God makes what he just said. That's a little different than day one, like where he actually seems to be actively doing it himself in some way. It sounds a little different than the first day. It's a little more involved sounding. Then Moses affirmed that the thing happened. It was so. God names what he's made. Day is done. So day two, you already see it now. A little different. A little more involved. A little more complex. Now look at day three. This time, God isn't going to speak just one time. He's going to speak twice. First time that's happened. 
He starts by saying, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. Moses affirms that it happens. God names what he's made. He declares that what he's made is good. And then he speaks a second time. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Moses affirms that again what God says happens. He repeats then that what God did actually happened, and God declares what he's made as good, and that day comes to an end. That's much more complex than the other two days. In day four, he speaks. This is a very long speech, comparatively speaking. It comes to pass. Moses explains how it comes to pass. God makes what he said, tells what his purpose is. He puts them in their arenas to rule over the the day and the night, the light and the darkness, to separate those areas. God declares that it's good. That day is done. Day five, you see even more activity. Now God is filling up the arenas of the heavens and the waters by creating birds and sea creatures of all sorts. So he speaks, he makes what he says, he declares it's good, and then something new is added. God blesses and commands. This involves God speaking again. He blesses all of these creatures and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. He wants them to go out and do even more creating. And then that day is done. And then finally we get to day six. And just like on day three, God makes two things again. You see two creative acts. He speaks, and this is the creation of the land creatures of all sorts. Uh, What he says happens. Moses describes what God did. God declares it is good. And he speaks again, and this is the creation of man. But this time, God doesn't speak to creation. Who does he speak to? He speaks to himself. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over all of this creation that we've made. And so God makes what he said. He blesses man. He speaks to man, commanding him to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Tells him to subdue it, have dominion over it. Speaks to him again, tells him about his provision of food, not just for him, but for all of the animals. And all these things are so, and behold, God declares it all very good. And then finally, that day is done. Now, I just walked through the creation story like at a lightning pace, right? All I was trying to show you is how as you move from day to day, did you see it? Each day gets a little more a little more complex, a little more involved. It's as if it's building like a crescendo. Like it's trying to take us somewhere. And so day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. What's it leading us to? Where does the crescendo head? Who is smart enough to get that answer right? I'll tell you. It's day seven. It's day seven. Day seven is the crescendo of creation. God finishing his work. In the other days, he sometimes blesses things he's made, but day seven is the only day he blesses directly. God blesses the Sabbath day. He makes it holy. He sets it apart. We, as we read the creation story, are supposed to be riding this wave that takes us to this finished work of God on day seven, where everything is done. And I don't have the time this morning to build out the significance of why Moses is doing that, though I think you'll pick up on it a little bit as we begin to apply. My point here is simply to show you 
that you can see process and progress in the very way that God laid out the creation week and the way that Moses has told us the story. He's given it a structure, and all of that structure is heading to a point. Now, second, hold that. You see process and progress in how God alters the original state of creation. If you look back at verse 2, you'll see that the earth, and you really need to understand the word earth in verse 2 is very, very loosely, okay? The earth is a dark, watery, uninhabitable kind of place. And I always like to do a little exercise here because it makes me laugh. Um, I want you to humor me for one moment, and I want you to read verse 2. Just refresh your memory on what verse 2 says, and then I want you to get a mental picture of what you see in verse 2, okay? I want you to close your eyes if you need to. I don't care, however you get here. But I want you to picture what is described in verse 2. Has everybody got a picture in their mind? Okay, nod your head so I know that you're not asleep. All right, everyone's got a picture. All right, here's the question of my response. If you could see anything at all, you totally didn't understand verse 2. If you have any picture in mind... You're wrong, all right? Love you to death, but you're wrong, all right? Because we're talking about whatever verse 2 is, it's almost unimaginable, I think, to our mind. There's definitely no light here. Light's not made until verse 3, so see, you could see it. You were already messed up. Um, it's, It's not like floating out in space. I don't think space has even really been made yet as we think of it. So I don't know how to understand this thing. I just know that whatever it is in verse 2, it is a dark, watery, nebulous something where life cannot exist. That's all I know about verse 2. It is a dark, watery, nebulous something where life cannot exist. And so how in the world is God going to overcome that? Well, guess what he does? He begins a process. (laughs) On day one, he overcomes the darkness. He makes light, and he separates it from the darkness. So he's overcome the first big obstacle. On day two, he overcomes the water. He makes an expanse in the midst of the waters. He separates these things. So that now there is room for life. There's a space where it can exist. So he's overcome that obstacle. And then finally on day three, he overcomes the uninhabitable nature of earth by making dry land appear and filling that land with vegetation. And now there's a home where living creatures can thrive. And so by the end of day three, you see that God has taken that dark, watery, uninhabitable place, and he has radically transformed it. Not all at once, but day one, a little. Day two, a little. Day three, a little. And so you see God working through process and progress to overcome that. And then third and finally, you see process and progress and how God brings abundant life into the world. So even as he begins to fill the world with life, it's not one and done. He starts with the plants, and certainly they're alive, but their life isn't like ours, so he doesn't bless them, he doesn't command them, he simply makes them for the sustenance of his creation. Next, he makes the animals, uh, birds, water creatures, day five, land animals, day six. To these things, God does speak, and he does bless, and he does command them to go out and multiply, but still he's not done because the pinnacle of his creation of life here on earth is mankind. You know, man is different in two clear ways from the plants and the animals. One, he's made unique because he's made in the image of God. No other life on earth is like this. So, so man is clearly unique. But two, man's given dominion over all the other life. He's to subdue it, have dominion over it. You know that part. Again, do you see the progression I'm talking about here? How it's boom, boom, 
boom, boom. It keeps building and growing up and so that by the end of day six, you not only have a habitable world where life can exist, but one that is already filled with an abundance of life with the expectation that more is yet to come because of all those commands to go be fruitful and multiply. God's working through process and progress and all of these things. Now, I laid all that out. You guys have been good listeners. Thank you. How how does this affect our theology? This is what I said at the beginning, right? If Moses is writing to introduce us to who God is, how does this affect our theology of creation and our theology in general? In other words, what does this teach us about God himself and about his plan for this world? Well, right off the bat, we have to affirm what we have already observed this morning, and that is that God chose to work through process and progress in creation, that these weren't accidental things, that these aren't things he's forced to do because of some lack of ability on his part. No, this, this represents a choice by God to present himself to Israel and to us in this particular way. It represents a choice by Moses to record it in this way, because remember, Moses wasn't in the garden, right? He's in the wilderness somewhere. They're, they're walking on the way to the promised land, and he's sitting there taking pen to paper, writing what what the, who this God is that has brought these people out of Egypt. He's trying to help them understand, so unless he checked Wikipedia, I'm assuming God gave him this information, and so it shows us, I think, that God really wants us to get this. He really wants us to see him acting in this manner, and there has to be significance to that, and I don't think the significance is very hard to see, because as I stop and reflect on how God has worked in other areas of of human history is I stop even to reflect how he works in my life and how he works in your life. You know what I see all over that? Process and progress. And I'll just illustrate it with two very simple things. Let's think for just a moment about God's revelation of himself to mankind. Okay? Did did God just reveal everything there was to know about himself to man at the beginning? Well, we Obviously, can't answer that question fully, but I don't think so. We know he spoke to Adam and Eve. We know he spoke to Cain. We know he spoke to Noah. He probably spoke to others. We don't know. But eventually, we know he speaks to a man named Abram. And he tells Abram that, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use you through you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to make a great people out of you. Eventually, he takes that people out of uh, Egypt and out in the wilderness. He speaks to Moses, their leader, up at Mount Sinai, and he gives him inspired scripture, things to be written down and preserved for others to read. He sends prophets and gives more scripture. And then finally, he sends his own son, who, according to John, in John chapter 1, verse 18, has definitively revealed the Father to us. But can I just point something out? I mean, as you think through that progression there, you see it's like growing, 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 more revelation, more about God. Jesus is the pinnacle of revelation. Is there more to come? And the answer is yes. Because one day we're told we're going to see Jesus face to face. And then we will know even as we've been known. (laughs) There's even a greater, when that day of rest Oh, you hear a similar concept? When that day of final rest, eternal rest comes for us, we're going to know God in ways we, we don't even know today. We don't even know how to process. 
You see in God's progressive revelation of himself to mankind this idea that this crescendo builds growing more and more truth until we one day stand before him. And so the finality of God's revelation of himself will be experienced by those who have placed their faith in Jesus and stand before him in, in peace and forgiveness one day. I see process and progress all over that, but I also see it, I see it in how God works in, in our lives. You ever heard of a, a little phrase called progressive sanctification? Have you, have you maybe not, maybe, maybe though you've asked this question as a believer, why doesn't God just zap sin out of me all at once? I mean, what Christian has not asked that question at some point? Which of us have not gone, God, why? Why do you make us fight? Why does it have to be a battle? Hey, God, why haven't you changed so-and-so? Why haven't you worked in their lives? God, why are you going so slow? God, are you working at all? Which of us have not asked those questions? Every single believer who's been a believer for more than five seconds has asked that question. And we look at our lives and we get frustrated and we don't understand, but can I remind you that even in the process of being made into the image of Jesus, it's process and progress. And don't take my word for it. This is how the New Testament describes it as well. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you hear what he's saying? It's a process. You're being transformed. It's not day one and done. It's a process over time from one degree to another. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul tells the Colossians, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He actually references the Genesis story. But you're being renewed. It's not one and done. It's a process. It's a journey. It takes time. But, but what I really want to encourage your hearts with this morning out of all this is that what, what you see in Genesis is that when God begins a process, he brings it to completion. He, he doesn't get to day five and be like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> That's enough. Oh, day six, we're good. No, it's building. Day six is not the pinnacle. Day seven is the pinnacle. Day seven was what he was building toward, and he got to day seven, and he blessed it and made it holy. And so when God begins a process, he brings it to completion. And so with that idea in mind, listen again to the words that John, John read to us earlier from Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will do what? He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will. He doesn't begin a process that he does not end. That's not who our God is. And so if he's begun it, it's certain, Paul says. It is. You can bank on it. 
You can base your eternal hope on that truth, that if God has begun a work, he will do it. And so, yes, he may work through process and progress, and at times that may feel excruciatingly slow and painful. But no, no with certainty that he will do it. And so, brothers and sisters, if God's begun a good work in you through the gospel, rest assured, it will come to its end. It will come to its completion and perfection when you see Jesus face to face. At the day of Jesus Christ, you'll no longer fight with this body of death, as Paul calls it in Romans 7. You'll no longer have to live in this broken, fallen world that seems to attack us at every turn. We will be free from it forever. But until then, we have to recognize that this is who our God is. This is how he has chosen to work. And we have to believe that he is working in our lives in his own infinite wisdom and grace to change us and make us more like his son. Folks, you, if you're struggling with this at all, can I just help you with one couple little quick thoughts and I'm done. You see this in everything else in the world around you. You plant a tomato plant in your garden, and you don't sit there and go, where's the tomato? You know it's going to take time, process, progress. The plant's going to have to grow, and it'll eventually produce fruit, and eventually you'll be able to enjoy it, but you don't expect it right away. We conceive a child, and we're like, oh, where is he? Where is she? No, we know it's going to take nine months of development for that child to grow. God has woven this truth into the very fabric of creation. It's everywhere around you, so don't be surprised when you see it in the spiritual, your spiritual life as well. We're foolish, and I speak as the chief of fools, okay? We are foolish when we become discouraged when it doesn't feel like God's working fast enough. He's working. He's working in his infinite wisdom. He's working, and so, wow, Lord, forgive us. Like, we are an impatient people, unwilling to wait, frustratingly ignorant at the concept of perseverance, but this is how God works. And what we see in Genesis 1 and throughout the rest of Scripture is that when God does it something this way, he is faithful enough and powerful enough for us to trust him in that process. And so I exhort you this morning, brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Will you bow your heads with us? Father, we see very clearly in Scripture, very clearly laid out for us in the creation story, that this is just who you are and how you work. I, I don't know why. I don't question it. I, I have, but I'm not now. I, it's just what you have chosen, and you are all wise and all good. And so if we see this truth about you, not just in the creation story, but through through all the rest of Scripture and even in the world around us, Father, may we, may we rest in that truth? May we take comfort in the fact that you, you're too good to ever, to ever give us anything that's not for our best, to not take us through a process that's not for our best? I don't know what struggles people might have in here today. I don't know what journeys they've been on in life that have brought great pain or, or questioning into their heart, but Lord... Take your word this morning and drive it down deep that if you have begun the process of sanctification through the gospel, that you will see it through to completion. It is certain. And so, Lord, whatever comes, whatever struggles, help us to endure, 
to persevere, to be patient, to to have the long-suffering that only the Spirit can provide. Lord, I pray that you will give us grace to live underneath your wise, loving care because we see that this is you and we trust you. Help us to trust you more in Jesus' name. Amen.